What are some different factors to consider when determining legality for a short-term rental? The first thing I would do, once they've kind of narrowed down their market of where they think they would like to go as an investor, um, I would just Google like, you know, regulations in that area. So that's one of the quickest ways to find out. And then look up those county uh, regulations and see if they have restrictions around short-term rentals. If so, what are, what are the requirements to be able to operate there if they allow it at all? Everybody wanna get the bag, but y'all really know what it's gonna take. Trying to figure out how to start now. Blue gems, let to show you the way. Cause we talk finance and amortizing and anything it takes to get real estate. We've been grinding up there, finding ways to get paid. Better hop on this web, cause we're dropping blue gems. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems. Let's go. Let's go. Another episode of Blue Gems. Man, Brant, so happy to have you here, bro. Thanks for coming on, bro. Yeah, let's excited to be here. Let's uh dive into your story, man. Like, how did you get into real estate? What are you up to? All that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much for having me. Uh it's definitely good to see you guys again. Yeah, for man. sure, for sure. So uh my story started off in Nashville, Tennessee in 2014. I actually uh was a wholesaler out there for a little bit and I attended a wholesaling course, I think it was with Fortune Builders, something nice. like that. So <laughs> I was out there, you know, took a, a weekend class, learned about wholesaling and uh got me excited to get into the real estate industry. Uh so flash forward a few years, you know, got my real estate license, um, got into short-term rentals, and you know, the rest is history. So it's been great. It's nice. Been going well. Nice, nice. Are you actually doing something with your realtor's license? Are you helping out investors? What are you up to with that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I specialize in working specifically with uh, short-term rental investors, um, and so yeah, it's been you know it's been excellent. Love it, love it. So like, what makes you different than a, a I guess a normal realtor? Like, if what what benefits if I was going to buy a short-term rental as an investor? that you could help me out versus just like a normal realtor. Yeah, absolutely. So I work with a team, short-term shop, and uh, we specialize in working with short-term rental investors pretty much all over the country. Uh, we're predominantly in the uh, East Coast markets for the most part uh, right now. However, our entire business model uh, is designed to teach our clients how to manage properties uh, themselves and really mm. from anywhere. So that's our, our our primary focus um yeah everything you know down from just starting from the very beginning we start with a consultation class uh we teach you know how to invest in different markets how to how to pick the right market uh for each individual investor situation and then be able to scale so that's the, the primary focus so you started in 2014 mm -hmm. the current year is 2022 what were you doing along that journey to land in short-term rentals yeah, so I did a lot of wholesaling in the very beginning. Uh, then I got into some flipping uh, for a little bit. And then I actually had my license in New York for a short period of time as well. So that was a great experience. I met some really cool people up there. Uh, but yeah. So what are the pros and cons of the different, you know, real estate facets you've been a part of, right? So wholesaling compared to flipping compared to buy and hold. 
Yeah, so wholesaling I found was pretty inconsistent. Now, I know there are some wholesalers that do very well, um, but I think that that was something that was difficult to continue on as a full-time business. I felt that wholesaling actually works really well as a strategy for somebody that does flipping um, and that sort of thing. Uh, it can be one way of, of um, you know, assigning contracts to other buyers. If it doesn't make sense to stay in the deal, there's not going to be as much spread in, in terms of how much work is required to complete a project uh, may not be worth it in that sense, you know, to wholesale it out. Um, and then, yeah, so with uh, flipping houses and getting into that, really, that was just another um, strategy, you know, that that uh, that I got into too for a little bit, you know, through partnerships and that sort of thing. And how many flips did you do during that time? So I did about 14 flips uh, wow. between 2015 to 2017, somewhere in there. Wow. So yeah. And then how did you end up in Florida from, from Tennessee? Yeah. So 2020 was a pretty interesting year. Um, and I think for me and my fiance, actually, she was going to school at the time in upstate. And uh, we figured out that, um, you know, basically we wanted to, we were going to choose between going back to Nashville once she finished her degree or going somewhere else. And we really wanted to focus on the short-term rental market. We wanted to give that a shot. Uh, we felt that it was going to be a good fit for uh, what we were ultimately trying to accomplish with our investment strategies. And just, you know, we were noticing that there's a huge area of opportunity for that. There's not a lot of, of realtors that are, um, that focus a lot of their attention on short-term rentals. So that was our, our primary reason for moving here uh, to the Central Florida market. Amazing. And so as, as, as an investor is thinking about investing into the short-term space, what are some things they should be considering? Yeah. So when you're looking at uh, different markets, right, when you're kind of comparing that, there's, you know, and my uh, team lead talks about this quite a bit. So Avery Carl, um, she'll talk about the major metro markets, then the regional, regional drivable markets, and then um, uh, what's the other one that we have? Um, so we have major metro markets, then we have large vacation markets, and then we have regional, regional drivable <laughs> markets. Nice. So... Uh, those different types of markets will have different pros and cons. So in your major metro markets, you're going to have a lot more regulation and a lot more um, volatility when it comes to, um, you know, like for Nashville is a prime example, right? Where you're dealing with a market where at one point short-term rentals were allowed and then all of a sudden they weren't and then they were heavily regulated, right? So if you're in a regional drivable market, those are vacation markets specifically designed for the purpose of being on vacation, places like Destin, places like the Smokies, um, and so on, right? And then you have uh, the Orlando market, which is kind of a combination of both, right? It's a large metro market, but it's also a vacation, large vacation destination um, where people come in, the, you know, in droves uh, from all over the world. So like if I was an agent uh -huh. and I want to now start transitioning and helping out um, investors that are looking to get into short-term rentals, what are some of the tangible things that I need to know to help facilitate these deals? Yeah, absolutely. So the number one thing, of course, is you need to understand your market, but not from just the perspective of somebody that's interested in purchasing there, but also somebody that would be interested in staying there, right? Um, so you need to know your laws and regulations uh, as it pertains to short-term rentals, what the minimum lease period is. If you have HOAs, you need to understand what the HOA bylaws are, 
know, if there's any upcoming changes in those HOAs as well, it's very important. Uh, what seasonality looks like, uh, typically speaking, what average nightly rate in occupancy is, is uh, common in that area. Um, and then also when somebody is going to stay there as a guest, what is it that they're looking for? Because that's going to be market specific, right? Um, so having that knowledge is very important. There's actually a, a designation uh, with the realtors uh, designation that can help kind of get this started in a sense. It's definitely not a be all end all, but there's the uh, resort specialist uh, designation that can help uh, if somebody wanted to get started in this space. So you mentioned regulation. So I feel like that's one of the most important things when considering, you know, where to invest in a short term rental. So what are some different factors to consider when determining legality for a short term rental? Yeah. So the first thing I would do once they've kind of narrowed down their market of where they think they would like to go as an investor, um, I would just Google like, you know, regulations in that area. So that's one of the quickest ways to find out and then look up those county uh, regulations and see if they have restrictions around short term rentals. If so, what are what are the requirements to be able to operate there if they allow it at all? For sure. And then HOA within the county could also have their own laws and regulations that you have to abide by. So kind of considering all things into one umbrella regulation. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Now, do, do you help them like calculate the numbers and figure out what the ADR is? And, it, and if you do, like, are you using any, any softwares or tools to, to help accomplish that? Yeah, so we try to be very conservative with, um, you know, any kind of estimates that we're giving out just because there's an element of liability there. However, we definitely teach our clients how to go from, um, you know, just taking an average property and turning it into you know, maximizing the cash flow that it can produce. So that is something that we teach part of our uh, Management Mondays class, actually with Short Term Shop. Um, so uh, with that being said, we use AirDNA, so that's a pretty common one. Um, and we also use Rabu, so data.rabu, I believe. Um, that's a really good resource. And then Price Labs as well is very helpful. And then after you acquire the property, right, so you underwrite it, you determine that you can get X amount of dollars per night, how do you maximize the ADR on a property after you've actually acquired it? So we found that uh, customer experience is one of the most important parts of um, how a property performs and, and how it's managed is ultimately going to be the biggest factor, right? Um, to contribute to customer experience. And so if a property is well maintained and very well uh it's cleaned you know and um the guests know that they can get in contact with somebody at some point if there's ever a major issue something like that um just overall just creating an excellent guest experience can really drive up your nightly rates it's one of the biggest factors i mean if you look at the reviews um, for any market it, you'll notice the cleanliness is first and foremost it's one of the things that's mentioned the most um so you can solve that problem i mean that's that's half the battle hundred percent. And yeah, I mean, like, it's almost like once you have a clean property that's managed really well, it's going to reflect in the reviews mm -hmm. and then Airbnb or any other OTA is going to push that property to the top mm -hmm. so that we can continue to get more, more guests. So it works in like a, 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 a orderly fashion, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Now, do you find a lot of your clients self-managing or are they predominantly using management companies? So all of our clients, I would say almost all of our clients are self-managing the properties. 
I have had quite a few clients uh, come to me and say, you know, Brant, I don't know if I can do this, but I really want to get into this short-term rental thing. Um, so what they usually find by the end of a transaction, well, after we've put them through the class and everything, they figured out, you know, if I can manage this thing an hour a week and I could theoretically replace my job, which they may or may not like, right, um, for only maybe an hour a week to managing these properties, why wouldn't I do that? Now, there will come a point where if you scale to a certain you know, degree, maybe it makes sense to bring somebody on the books, you know, um, or just kind of go that route. But there's always some variation of self-managing that you can always do. And the reason why we teach that is because, um, you know, and it's kind of like this in any market, but we found that, you know, giving away 20, 25 percent of your gross revenue uh, to a company that you're hoping manages the property uh, you know, to the highest standard, which I've very rarely seen. Right. Um, it just doesn't make sense financially most often. And that's one of the biggest things is being able to come into a property that is managed by maybe a, a management company that just isn't bringing things up to par, right? Uh, being able to put that property under contract, self-managing the property and really doing an excellent job. I mean, that's that in itself is a form of value add, right? Um, so that's, that's what we teach and it's working out very well. So if I have limited time, but I'm very interested in self-managing, what are some things that I should be learning, you know, as I'm just getting started? Yeah. So I think, uh, one really big, uh, tool is automation, right? So being able to use a property management software is huge. Um, being able to automate, uh, through different, you know, platforms has been one of the biggest factors, uh, to being able to help our clients. Property management software, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, so give me an example. Yeah, so a uh, platform like IGMS, right? Um, it can actually just handle uh, your guest bookings. You can handle your text messaging and that sort of thing. Um, you, there's also property management services that allow you to uh, link up like your, your slage on code, right? And you can actually use that uh, to, uh, I believe you can change the code for each guest to the last four of their phone number. So every time they book, it automatically does that for you, handles your cleaning services. So anytime there's a turnover, your uh, your cleaning service is gonna get a text message and it's gonna let them know, hey, we need to you know, uh, book a cleaning. So all of that can be systematized and, and outsourced to software, uh, which is pretty incredible. Awesome. So what do you guys do about um, like pricing strategies? Cause I mean, I, I would imagine that that is super important, you know, maximizing your calendar days. So I'm sure 4th of July is gonna go for a lot more than a random Wednesday and a weekday, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we teach something called the enemy method. And uh, this is where you figure out what the top performing properties are in a specific market. And you figure out what they're doing, what their prices are. And um, you know, you figure out if there's seasonality, for that market, you kind of learn those things as you go. Um, so that's been one of the biggest strategies, but we do have quite a few videos um, that kind of teach that method as well. And that's been very effective. Is that something you're doing periodically? So you're periodically checking the calendar before big holidays and events pretty much? Yes, absolutely. You can do you know more of a manual approach um, if you have the time. If you're looking to just kind of get things done and, and systematize um, as quickly as possible, there's also things like Price Labs that can be very effective. Amazing. So as a realtor, what's your what's your immediate goals? Um, I would say two part question as a realtor and then also as an investor. Yeah, absolutely. So something that I really set into my 
had when I first started as a realtor in this market was I had a goal to help as many people as I possibly could. Um, I wanted to specialize down to, you know, a micro niche, right? And then be the absolute best at it. And so for me, it's short-term rentals um, in the uh, central Florida area, right? Um, I don't cover a very large distance, but I know everything about those HOAs. And I know that when a client comes to me and asks me a question, if I don't have an answer, I'll be able to get it for them, um, you know, quickly. Um, but that's been one of the biggest factors, I would say. What's, what's your goals as an, an investor, you know, because I know that you are aspiring to buy purchase, uh, purchase properties as well. Mm -hmm. So what are your goals? Are you trying to buy your first one this year? Do you want to eventually not be a realtor? What's, what's your goals? Yeah, absolutely. So I plan on being a realtor for quite a while, but I love the idea of peace of mind, right? Knowing that you have options. And I believe that um, it's very important to build a portfolio um, of an asset that you understand very well um, and be able to use that as uh, a way to um, just kind of have options, right? So if there's ever a market downturn, then being able to have uh, backup strategies for that is, is very important. I think anybody can take advantage of that. Where do you see the market headed? You know, you mentioned market downturn. What are you seeing locally and, you know, on the macro level as well? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, in our local market, what we were noticing, you know, January through about April or so, uh, there was less than a month's worth of inventory. And of course, interest rates were at an all time low. Um, and we'd seen more buyers in the market than ever before. And now we're seeing that, you know, uh, we're seeing about three months worth of inventory. So things are actually really good. I think they're much healthier than they were before. I understand the interest rates are higher. Um, we are seeing that some of the listing agents and the sellers are having to uh, cut prices slightly from where they were, but they're actually matching up where the appraisals are coming back at, right? So before it was very common to, to you know, have properties that were under contract for you know, five to 10%, sometimes higher above what the appraised value was, whereas now they're coming back much closer, uh, which is a good thing. Um, so I think overall right now, everything is great. And I really think this is an excellent time to buy. So I know that like what you said, having the 10% over appraised value, most of the buyers are going to have to like build what's called like a uh, gap appraisal contingency or whatnot. Are you guys now waiving that because it's priced appropriately? Yeah, so in the Florida market, uh, specifically with our as-is contract in November, they actually removed the appraisal contingency out of the contract. So right now they have an, a financing contingency, uh, which is included, but it doesn't specifically state that the appraisal has to come back at any, any specific price. They just have to qualify for the loan. Um, so that has been an effective strategy. It's just not including an appraisal contingency in the contract uh, to be able to get them under contract. And the premise would be that if it doesn't appraise, they don't get the loan. So then the financing contingency kicks in and you can back out and get back your EMD. Yes, pretty much. that's correct. Uh -huh. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I always wonder that, right? Because I hear a lot of people talking about appraisals and appraisal gaps, but my thought was always to just rely on the financing component, right? Kind mm -hmm. of leverage your lender to say, hey, if the property doesn't appraise, you guys aren't going to lend me the value anyway. So I'm not going to be able to qualify for the loan. Thus, I'm not going to be able to, you know, live by the contract. So yeah, exactly. that's how I always understood it. And then speaking of financing, you know, what trends are you seeing within your investor community on how they're taking down properties? Are people paying cash, maybe higher down payments, lower down payments? What trends are you seeing there? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of different types of loans that we're seeing used a lot, uh, specifically with short-term rentals. Um, so cash is common in general in this market, but not so much at the moment, right? So I think that created a frenzy uh, really between the end of 2021 and beginning of 2022 specific to this market. Um, but now we're seeing a lot more um, you know, DSCR loans for short-term rentals and vacation home loans uh, have been very popular. So somebody that has a W-2 job might be able to get uh, qualifications for, um, or even possibly a 1099 uh, for vacation home loan. So conforming uh, Fannie Freddie loan uh, to be able to put 10% down towards a uh, short-term rental. And that can be a very effective way to get into this market. Are there any like qualifications to, you know, get this said vacation home loan? Yeah, so it's going to be very similar to uh, your primary home loan, the, the kinds of requirements that would be, um, you know, it's a standard conventional loan, right? So 10% down, some lenders require some reserves, you know, four to six months of reserves, potentially. Um, being able to show two years of income is pretty typical. Um, and then, you know, debt to income is also considered with that type of loan. So that's important to know. Uh, the only downside to a vacation home loan is that they don't consider the potential rent rate, right? Or the potential income of the property because it's not being technically purchased for that reason, if that makes sense. Um, but it can be, so you have to rent, you have to plan to live in that unit or stay in it for 14 days out of the year. However, what, what you do with it after that is entirely up to you because it's yours and you can do what you want with it. Um, but it just isn't viewed and isn't underwritten as investment property. So what about distance? Does does distance play a part at all? Like if I live in X, can I buy a vacation home down the street or my neighbor's house and yeah. use that second home loan? That's a great question. So uh, it's usually 50 miles or so. Um, I heard that some lenders have some slight flexibility with that, but it's, it's about 50 miles uh, from your primary residence. Yeah, and the premise would be that it has to make sense, right? Mm -hmm. From the underwriter's eyes, you know, typically you're not going to buy a vacation home next door because that is just another primary or, you know, an investment. Bro, property. I want a vacation right next door. <laughs> Camp out, bro. Hop, hop down the street, bro. <laughs> That's a vacation. And then you mentioned DSCR. Can you explain for the listeners, like, what, what that means exactly? Like, how would you be able to take a property down with a DSCR loan? Yeah, so this is a relatively new loan for the short-term rental market. So it stands for debt service coverage ratio. And basically what it does is it's a, a type of loan that considers the cash flow of the asset uh, to qualify the debt service, right? So as long as, and it depends on the lender, depends on, on specifically the type of DSCR, but in a lot of cases, they'll do a one-to-one -one ratio. So let's say your mortgage PITI is gonna be somewhere around you know, $5,000. Maybe the, the projected income of that property is going to also be $5,000 and $1, right? Um, so in that situation, that would qualify because it's a one-to-one -one plus the $1. So that's that's a new strategy that a lot of uh, investors are using uh, or more commonly in this market. There's only a handful of brokers and lenders that will use short-term rental data to qualify these loans. So it's very important that if somebody's looking for this, that they're working with a realtor that knows short-term rentals um, and has those connections. That can be a huge asset. So that would be a good opportunity for somebody to scale. Like let's say they're tapped out with their DTI mm -hmm. because it sounds like the DSCR doesn't equate to or limit be limited to this DTI. Yes, that's correct. So it doesn't actually consider your debt to income. Wow. Uh, so as long as you have a good credit score 
and you've got the cash for the down payment, uh, you're pretty much good to go. What's the down payment generally on the DSCR that you're seeing? Typically 20% and okay. it has to appraise um, at the value of the property and also, uh, you know, so your purchase price is to appraise at your purchase price and also the rent rate. So that's an important consideration. So the lender will also appraise the the rental rate on a long-term basis or a short-term basis? So there, that's, that is uh, something that's really important. So uh, the DSCR loan is most commonly used for long-term rentals and also commercial loans. Um, so if you're using it for short-term rental, you have to make sure that they're going to use short-term rental data to qualify the loan. Got it. So do you have a network of lenders that you have been connected with that will allow your investors to go and qualify for these loans or at least try to? Yes, absolutely. Amazing. So you pretty much have the whole the whole toolkit, right? So I think that's kind of the the sell for a short-term rental focused agent is that you come with the whole package. So if I need a lender, you got my back. If I need a if I need guidance on the HOAs, you understand all the rules and regulations. So I think that is really the the importance of working with someone like yourself. Yeah, automation, you can help with the ADR, regulations, HOA permits, licensing. I mean, your typical, no offense to all the realtors out there, great, but they're not gonna have all those tools accessible like you guys would. Right, exactly. You know, cause we're not just teaching people how to buy a property or helping them buy a property. We're teaching them how to run a business. And that's, I think a very important distinction is that yes, we're realtors and we help them uh, acquire a property, but it's a property for a specific purpose. And a lot of times these are investors have never purchased a property before. And there is some element of responsibility on both ends, both theirs to learn the business, but also ours to make sure that they're not just buying something and just, you know, we're just handing them off uh, to nothing and just hoping that they, they succeed. So I think that's one of the biggest factors is having a, a realtor that understands for fiduciary responsibility and also understands how the business works and how they can get the end result that they're looking for. I have a question. So amongst your brokerage and your team, I'm sure that there's one person uh, that sticks out in your mind that has bought the most properties with your brokerage. Can you think of that person? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Now, what is that person doing to scale as often and buy as many properties as he or she's been doing? Yeah, so we have a few that are really in the same kind of position um on our team so we've been blessed to be one of the top uh producing real estate teams in the country uh hopefully this year will be number one that's the goal let's go. let's go so yeah but so in order for them to scale um they've just and they've laser focused their entire uh life just revolves around short-term rentals and just being the absolute best that they can be in that space as realtors but now that they have that information, they're able to teach their clients, they're able to apply it themselves. And it's kind of the same for, for myself and you know, all of the team members. But that's been the biggest thing is just you know, getting as, as helping as many clients as they possibly can in the markets that they're in, and then being able to apply those same you know, methodologies to their own real estate investing. Love that. It's so important, I feel, to hone in on one thing, right? You know, we hear about the tiny, tiny, uh, shiny object syndrome all the time. And JB and I struggle with that a lot because there's so many things you can do in real estate, right? You already mentioned three things, but there's 30 more that I can name. And so if you really want to be successful in short-term rentals, I think the challenge becomes really saying no to all the other things you can do in real estate. And I think you've done a really good job with that. And I think your clients will appreciate you being the short-term rental guy and kind of put everything else on the back burner. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it took a long time for that to happen too, because, you know, of course I started in real estate in 2014. Um, and I did kind of go down that route of, okay, there's so many different things I can do in real estate. Right. And I read every bigger pockets book I could find, <laughs> listen to every bigger pockets podcast. And I really just went into this information overload. And in some ways it helped me tremendously. And in some ways it really put me at a deficit because I, I got to the point where I was in, you know, the analysis paralysis, you can really go any direction. But it was at that point where I said, hey, I'm going to do this one thing. I'm going to do it better than anyone else. And the best version that I can do myself, um, that's when everything kind of changed. Amazing. That's amazing. Love it. You want to get into the formal? Yeah, let's questions? do it. Absolutely. So what do you think separates those who buy a short-term rental versus those who, who never actually get in the game? Yeah, I think fear holds people back more than anything else. Um, and I really think that's just a general principle. Um, so fear of getting started, maybe not having enough cash to get into the to, into a deal, but even that can be overcome with time and just effort um, and just focus. So I would say, you know, not having the focus um, or enough discipline to stay, you know, uh, focused for long periods of time to be able to develop the cash, maybe to get into the properties and then fear fear that there's going to be some kind of economic downturn, uh, fear that they're going to make some kind of mistake, uh, something along those lines. But I would say, you know, something I learned from a guy in, in upstate New York, he had over $30 million for the real estate. Um, he was an old school investor, worked in commercial. And he said, you know, even on my bad deals, they weren't that bad that he's purchased in his lifetime. Um, and what he meant by that was, you know, real estate is, can be very forgiving as much as, you know, you can get into crazy situations, but a lot of times if you hang on to that property, you know, things will be okay, right? It'll work out. The numbers will make sense um, as you go. Cause when it comes to average nightly rate, when it comes to things like that, you know, if you're down on the equity, but you can make the payments, it'll come back up, right? So when you're worried about making mistakes, I think that's just a really important distinction to know that maybe it's not the best right now, but if you hold that asset, you know, five, 10 years from now, you can be in a fantastic place. I love it. Now, if I'm a brand new agent, I want to get involved in the short-term rental space. What's the number one thing I should be doing? So I think this is kind of cliche, but it's so incredibly important. Your network is your net worth. And that is, uh, I would say the biggest thing, you know, make sure you're joining networking events with the right people. What I mean by right people is I'm talking about movers and shakers, people making big decisions, doing big things on a daily basis. And just introducing yourself, don't ask them for anything, just introduce yourself and just, you know, say hello, let them know that you exist and just kind of go from there, just build rapport with people. Um, I think that's one of the most important things is just building a network. Amazing. One more question. So if you could leave the listeners one tip, some advice, um, a blue gym, if you will. It could be about real estate. It could be about being a realtor. It could be about short-term rentals. It could be life in general. What would you want to leave them? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's really important to make sure that you're focused on what it is that you want to accomplish. So find that goal, really narrow in on that goal, and then create systems and processes to make that happen. And I think that another thing that's really important to remember is if you're not sure how to do something, Instead of asking, how can I do something? Ask, who can help me do this thing? I think that that is extremely important. Um, you know, something to, to really keep in mind. Who not how. Who not how. Let's go. <laughs> yeah.
Man, what an episode. Thanks so much, brother. Thank you, brother. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. JB dropping blue gems. AG dropping blue gems. New podcast, baby, tune in. We in this thing dropping blue gems.